Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kristen Conger. And I'm Caroline Irvin. And we're hosts of the podcast Stuff Mom Never Told You that gets down to the business of being women from every imaginable angle. That's right. Kristen and I skillfully decode the biology, psychology, and sociology of ladies and gents from their evolutionary past to millennial present to better understand all of that stuff mom never told you. No offense, moms. Now be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to How Stuff Works Now. I'm your host, Lauren Vogelbaum, a researcher and writer here at How Stuff Works. Every week, I'm bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous developments that we've seen in science, technology, and culture. This week, humpback whales are the righteous vigilantes of the sea, saving other animals from killer whales. And, unrelated, just as we humans have almost eradicated the parasitic guinea worm, the critters have jumped to a new host species. But first, senior writer and unabashed They Might Be Giants superfan Jonathan Strickland reports on a study into musical tastes and personality. The study concludes that your personality traits have a bigger influence on the type of music you like than your socioeconomic status, your gender, your age, or your cultural background. So what does your playlist say about you? It's not news that music can affect your mood. The typical medical waiting room has soothing songs to help ease tension and anxiety. Gyms pump in the upbeat, driving music to motivate people to get moving. And I like listening to melodramatic show tunes after a hard day. No judging. This is a safe space. But beyond affecting our moods, our musical tastes are linked to our personalities. And now we know that the two are more closely related than previously thought. Because science! A team of researchers from Stanford and the University of Cambridge conducted studies on musical taste and personality, but they almost immediately disregarded the concept of music genres. That's because genres are fuzzy categories that are really only useful to the music industry for marketing purposes. Within each genre, you'll find very different types of music. One song may have a faster beat and poppy lyrics, while another slows things down and challenges the listener with complex melodies, even though both songs are in the same genre. 
The team wanted to go a level deeper than genre, to the qualities that define Western music. They identified three broad dimensions of music, arousal, valence, and depth. A song with an intense beat and driving music has a high rating in arousal. Valence is a term in psychology that refers to emotional reactions. Generally speaking, positive valence means the music is happy and negative valence means the music is sad. And depth is a measure of a song's complexity. Simple tunes have low depth. The researchers conducted surveys in which 9,500 people listened to short clips of music unfamiliar to them. The subjects rated the clips, which represented a wide variety of music with different levels of arousal, valence, and depth. The subjects also took a personality test, and that's when the team saw how the same personality types gravitated toward music with similar levels of those three dimensions. According to the researchers, open-minded liberals gravitate toward complex music with high depth. The more neurotic among us tend to listen to high-intensity, emotionally negative tunes. Extroverts like me tend to like happy songs with positive valence, which is why I serenade the office with Walking on Sunshine at least once a month. Perhaps we'll be able to learn more about ourselves by taking a closer look at the music that moves us. And services like Spotify or Pandora could use this research to tweak recommendation algorithms so that you're more likely to hear stuff that appeals to you based on your personality. Beyond that, music can help improve physical and mental health. Who knows? Maybe in the future, the doc's prescription will read, Listen to two Weezer albums and call me in the morning. Next up, my fellow writer and researcher Christian Sager brings us the story of how humpback whales frequently intervene in orca attacks on other animals. But why? Are they altruistic? Are they keeping killer whales in their place? Or are humpbacks out for revenge? A pod of killer whales in Antarctica has a seal cornered on an ice floe. Just as they knock it off and close in for the kill, a humpback whale bursts upward beneath them. It uses its flippers to hold the seal on its upturned belly, keeping it out of the water until the predators leave. We all love it when someone stands up to a bully, and there are records of humpbacks saving all kinds of animals from killer whales, including sea lions, sunfish, seals, and gray whales. But... Are they doing this intentionally? Are humpbacks the superheroes of the sea? The marine ecologist who saw the humpback seal scenario I just described is Robert Pittman. His team has published a new study in the Journal of Marine Mammal Science that takes a closer look at what's going on here. An adult humpback is so enormous that it's pretty much invulnerable to a group of killer whales, and when it gets in the middle of a brawl, it uses its massive pectoral flippers to basically say, ah, hell no, step back, son. They slap the water and bellow, pushing the killer whales back. This mobbing behavior is a response we also see in birds, insects, fish, and other mammals to chase off potential predators. Humpbacks have foiled killer whales everywhere from Antarctica to the North Pacific. Sometimes they even work in pairs and will travel over two kilometers to ruin a killer whale hunt. They've been observed to keep fighting for up to seven hours until the prey can escape. The team's research looked at 115 documented interactions between humpbacks and killer whales from 1951 to 2012, and they found that almost exclusively they went after mammal-eating killer whales instead of those that just eat fish. We're talking more like the 1977 horror movie Orca 
than we are free willy here. And while humpbacks do mob killer whales attacking their own calves, 89% of the time, they're saving other species entirely. So why are humpbacks doing this? They're not known to mingle with these other species in any other circumstance. Pittman's team thinks the humpbacks are drawn to the scene by the sounds killer whales make during their attack. And there's three possible motivations driving this behavior. One, a proactive warning to killer whales not to mess with their kin. Two, altruism. Or three, pure revenge. Since killer whales do attack young humpbacks, it's possible the adults respond to all attacks with extreme prejudice. But humpbacks are capable of sophisticated thinking and communication. So it's also plausible that they display a regard for other species. Dolphins do, and so do we, sometimes. But what if it's simply humpback reciprocity for past killer whale attacks on their family? Remember that shark in Jaws 4, The Revenge? It's like that, except for instead of chasing Michael Caine, they're after killer whales. Or maybe we shouldn't try to interpret their behavior through human experience at all. There's more research to be done, and even Pittman contends that this behavior may unintentionally arise out of self-interest we just don't understand yet. Finally this week, senior writer Robert Lamb has some parasites for us. You might not want to be eating during this segment. Former President Jimmy Carter has vowed to see the last guinea worm die before he does. And with the parasite eradicated from all but four countries, he's close. But now the enemy has found a new place to hide. Man's best friend. The guinea worm, Dracunculus metanensis, is a horrific human parasite. Its larvae infect tiny freshwater copepods, which then enter the human digestive system through unfiltered drinking water. The larvae then tunnel their way through the host's stomach and intestinal walls, where they mature and turn the human abdominal cavity into their own kinky sex cave. The males die in there, but each two-foot-long fertilized female migrates to the host's skin, generally somewhere on the lower body, and causes an excruciating blister to form. When the host attempts to relieve the blister with immersion in water, the female seems to sense the temperature change, bursts out of the blister, and excretes her foul larva to begin the cycle anew. The entire human portion of this life cycle takes about a year, and that's when a plague of other symptoms pop up in the human host. Fever, itching, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and dizziness. Secondary bacterial infections commonly then result in painful disability that can disrupt the individual's ability to work, attend school, or care for family members. Now, this disability period typically lasts uh, eight and a half weeks, according to the CDC, but it can sometimes prove permanent. That's why the Carter Foundation has waged a war of extermination on the guinea worm, cutting known infections down by 99.99% from 3.5 million cases in 1986 to just seven cases so far in 2016. But with victory so close at hand, this inhuman adversary has found a new place to hide. Just as the alien in John Carpenter's The Thing took the form of a dog to outwit its human hunters, so too has the guinea worm jumped to man's best friend. As reported by NPR, dogs in Chad began experiencing guinea worm infections three years ago, sometimes harboring as many as 62 worms per host. Now, researchers aren't sure exactly how the jump occurred or how the cornered parasites are reaching their new host species, but 600 dog infections popped up in Chad this year alone. 
Part of the problem is that dog ownership in Chad, as with much of the world, isn't quite like it is in the United States. The animals generally enjoy semi-feral free reign, but they need to be tied up for a solid two-week block if the worms are to safely leave their body and die on dry land. So the Carter Center is currently providing collars and chains. They're paying individuals to tie up their dogs in an attempt to corner the guinea worm and push this organism ever closer to the tipping point of total eradication. That's our show for this week. I hope we haven't put you off your lunch. Thank you so much for tuning in. Subscribe now for more of the latest and strangest science news and send us links to anything you'd like to hear us cover. Plus, your favorite place to go in New York City. We've got a field trip coming up. Shoot us an email at nowpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And to access thousands of other stories like these, check out our home planet, now.howstuffworks.com. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wooden! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.